It's Wiggly from We Talk Games. I'm here, and guess what? We got guests again. It's been a long time since we did that, and the last time that we had a guest like this fella would have been in 8-21-2009, which is, by my math, between 9 and 11 years ago. On the phone with me now is not George Lopez. It is George Gomez. Hello, everybody. Thanks for uh, good to be back after all these years. After all these years of absolutely nothing happening in the world, really. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Nothing has changed. Except pence ball. Pence ball, as my wife would call it. She, <laughs> she has a bit of, a, of an accent. So we're <laughs> going to talk about pence ball today, I would assume. We're not going to go all the way back through everything else. I think we have a break-off interview of it, too. You could just go to wetalkgames.com. There's a little guest boy at the bottom there that you scroll through, and then you just click on your Game Boyed up face, and boom, interview. I was talking to my wife the other day. I talk to her sometimes. and uh, That's a good thing. Yeah. We actually live in different countries at the moment. The fiancé visa is still happening, but... Um, I see. Yeah, yeah, which is very, very difficult for, for us. But, it, you know, when you want to get things right, you got to just wait sometimes. Oh, yeah. But I love Monster Bash. That's just the tops for fun. and One of my best. Yeah. It's, One of my best, sure. Yeah. And I, I also like uh, the, the Mars, Revenge from Mars. I don't know if you ever heard of that one. Yeah, yeah, another good one. Have you seen um, Have you seen Deadpool yet? I have not seen Deadpool. In fact, I got to tell you, ever since I got my own uh, pinball down in my Sloppy Joe's bar, I've sort of fallen off the pinball wagon, and I also fell out of video games and everything else because we've been doing this arcade weekly for the past several years, which we just talk about one arcade game a week. Maybe we talk about Satan's Hollow, I don't know. or. <laughs> Like really going back. Just dropping some things in there. I don't want to get off Deadpool, okay. but I sort of want to get off Deadpool because the pinball machine that I have, the table I have, is has sort of a tie-in to one of the games that you caught crap about. What game was that? That was a game where you, you only were going to score two points or three points. <laughs> Fast break, baby. Yes, yes. Yeah. So... I have the Gottlieb, geez, what is it, 71 football, 1972, okay. yeah. I know they came out with a football and a baseball, but you get football because that has a cheerleader on it. Right. So, but that has the two scores. You have your regular pinball, yeah. incredible, well, impossible Well, you know, fast break, yeah. fast break, you can go into the menu and you can, you can actually adjust it to play in conventional pinball scoring, but clearly... The magic is basketball scoring, especially if you have if you have two of them linked together. That's really wow. That's really super competitive fun. We prompt you through four quarters of basketball, and the announcer does a great job of keeping you know keeping the game exciting. The famous Tim Kitzrow announcer of NBA Jam and NFL Blitz, etc. Right, mm -hmm. all of the way over the top sports games, and so he did a great job with that. And I, I'll tell you what, if Fast Breaks made a 
sort of a resurgence in the world. A lot of people discovered them after not having noticed them for so many years. And now there's a bunch of barcades all over the country that have a pair of them linked because when they do, it's really kind of crazy to watch the, the crowds they draw when two guys are going head to head. And part of the head to head magic is understanding what you have to do to catch me or beat me. Mm-hmm. And that comes from basketball scoring from twos and threes, you know, and, and, and not not from one million three hundred seventy five hundred thousand, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, right. The more thousands that you score, the better you are. Yeah, even though yeah. you start at a thousand, <laughs> yeah, so you pinball's can actually, odd. You can actually go into the adjustment menu on fast break and set it up to score regular pinball points for all of those people that were offended by the notion of a pinball machine scoring like a basketball game. But, yeah, I yeah, love it. I commend it. <laughs> Let me tell you, I did it under duress. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that that particular time, I don't even remember if we talked about this in the 08 interview or in the 09 interview, but Williams was sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, but they were sort of the state of the art in pinball at the time. Along with being the state of the art in pinball came all these expectations and all this baggage. And so Mm. I think a lot of the guys in the studio were just like, that's not a pinball machine. That's a novelty game because it doesn't score like a pinball machine. Right, right. um, But to their credit, they also had a thing where they really believed that the game designer had to be allowed to execute his vision. And that's what, you know, on, and under that, the auspices of that philosophy, they allowed me to ship the game set to score in basketball points. But I was only allowed to do that if I also made it so that if somebody freaked out when they got it, <laughs> they could make a two-point shot score 100,000. How's that? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good compromise, I guess. When that came out, that was 1997, is that the only pinball table that could be hooked up against one another? I mean, not like the Joust. It was where the first. Okay, it was the first. Okay. It was the very first, yeah. It was the first, and it was, you know, I mean, remember what we thought of as connectivity in 1996, 97. Yeah. The internet as we know it, and the notion of putting games online and all that stuff was... Um, it was only AOL. Basically. Yeah, it was mostly a concept. I mean, it was really revolutionary. It was so revolutionary. I, I believe we got a patent on it, you know, at the wow. time where we could hook the two games together. And it was hardwired together. But I mean, it's it's, it's so funny how we, we just take all that stuff for granted nowadays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would have been funny if you, if you could have posted your high scores, you would have had a dial-up modem to a, a BBS, a bulletin board <laughs> service. And, uh, yeah, and, can... and you know what? I got to tell you that there were conversations about that, and that sort of stuff was just like, yeah, you know, that's crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say about Revenge from Mars uh, that uh, can I have one of those, please? <laughs> you want a Revenge from Mars? Yes, please. That's all. <laughs> yeah, you know that. Um, wow! I said, you please. Know, I, have, I, I, you know, I have a living room. My my living room is full of pinball machines. I think I have eight pinball machines in my living room, and 
when people come over, kids just gravitate to that revenge. It's the right combination of a thing they know, a video game presentation, and the pinball machine, and so which they don't know, and and they find somewhat intriguing. And so Christmas time, I had a bunch of people over, and there were a bunch of kids in the house, and and they just park themselves on that thing. And you know, I've got every I've got every game system. I mean, I have everything. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They could have been playing Xbox. They could have been playing my PlayStation. They could have been doing anything else. But that Revenge from Mars, for whatever reason, that novelty of tying those two things, a physical ball interacting with a virtual object in a video game character was just fascinating to him. And it's it's always funny to watch. It's like my Monster Bash also gets a lot of play, and that's a sort of an all-ages, all-genders kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Guys will, like, go up to the Lord of the Rings or the, the mm. John Monic and, and, you know, geek out on those games. But most of the competitive play happens on a Monster Bash, and women certainly are really drawn to the Monster Bash. They're not attracted to the Fast Break like they are the Monster Bash. Mm-hmm. Just kind of a man-on-the-street observation from years of watching people come to the house. And, and, you know, I don't tell them what to play. They play whatever you want. and Turn it on. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Mnemonic. The yeah. fellas like that. Yeah, you know. I love that game. You know, that game now has a cult following, right? When, when we made them, I couldn't give them away. <laughs> and, um, it might be perceived as one of the worst games I ever made, if you take it into account. In the context of my Williams career, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And today, that game, not only is it sell a lot of money, but there's a whole bunch of people that come up to me at shows and stuff, and they just can't stop talking about it. And and at the time, it was a dud. And I, I really like it. It is definitely my fastest flipping game, uh, meaning, meaning mm. that you get the ball rocking around that play field. And sometimes it even, when I haven't played it for a long time, talk about a game that will just absolutely humiliate you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. I think it's also my best flipping game. I mean, it's it's my smoothest game. Shot transitions, combinations, has all of that stuff. You know, although I have to say that when I sat down to do Deadpool, which is the last thing I did, in the back of my head, all these guys coming up to me at shows and saying, when are you going to do one like Johnny? Mm-hmm. And so I had put a lot of thought into uh, creating some new shots and uh, giving it some flow and giving it some combinations and some tr- shot transitions and stuff. It seems to have paid off. It's currently one of the highest, best earners in the country nationwide. There's a guy in one of the forums that just posted a picture of the cash box, and it's, it would, you know, he said, this is what $600 in a, in a debt pool looks like. Wow. Which, it was like two weeks of collections, you know. It was like the guy says, uh, at this rate, I'm going to pay for the game in no time. Yeah. So it's a game that seems to have struck a chord with people because it's Deadpool through and through. You know, lots of irreverent kind of fun stuff. So if you like flipping Johnny Mnemonic, I think you I think you really enjoy flipping Deadpool. Deadpool is a much more fun game from the standpoint that we had a lot of freedom in creating this world around the craziness of Deadpool. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the magic of that character, right? It's that Marvel sort of lets everyone that touches the character kind of do their own thing with it to to some extent, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how he's been in all the places he's been, done all the things he's done, and all the wacky scenarios and, and everything that's ever happened to him is because I think so many authors have touched the character, the fiction, the you know, the, the, the nuance of it. 
they've really fleshed out the character. Well, flesh would probably not be a made their movie. own. You know, everybody's everybody's sort of made it their own version of the character to some extent. Yes, they ta- they've and taken they someone all, else's idea and made it their own. Yeah, and it's they all managed to somehow coexist, which is amazing. <laughs> You know, it's like that's been tried with lots of different characters. And it's it's interesting how you have to adhere to the brand principles of, say, Batman. Mm-hmm. And you can't put Batman in all these different universes. And he has been put in all these different universes. And yet there's a consistency that's way more predictable and more linear than a Deadpool. Right. Yeah. And you can't it, break the it, canon. Whereas, right. Right. Uh, yep. With Deadpool, it's anything goes. Yeah. And then you build upon that. Absolutely. Everybody's that has had the fun of being able to work on Deadpool product has gotten some amount of leeway as to what they're going to do with him. It's all original art by a very talented artist, a guy named Jeremy Packer, who did such a good job that um, he got complimented by Rob Liefeld on the, mm. when we launched the game. Here, the guy who created the character is going to tell you that you did a great job that's not that's not such a bad day but you know we went in the direction of the comic book meaning that we took bits and pieces of deadpool fiction and added our own twist and did our own thing with it we did a fun thing with the music where we had all these different genres of music oh yeah yeah. Uh, hip-hop speed metal country western R&B, we mixed it all up and created a soundtrack out of it as a matter of fact for fun our limited editions come with a real full-size vinyl LP wow. uh, in transparent red vinyl, you know, with, <laughs> we got a lot of freedom. So I took the screen graphics on the LCD in a completely different direction. You know, I went and I purposely made it look like fighting games from the 90s. So it's, mm. it's all pixel art. And um, we rolled in like a lot of 80s and 90s video game and pinball sounds. And we parodied <laughs> fighting games. I mean, we really, we, we had so much fun with it. You got to check one out. It's doing really well. I'm very pleased that all that work is paying off in that people really like it and people are buying the crap out of it. So it's, yeah, it was a good thing. I'm supposed to be running the show. I'm not supposed to be designing games, but we got into a situation where we needed somebody to take that game and I stepped up and did it. Uh, I had a really good time doing it. That's great. Let me ask you this. I never asked a, a designer to compare two of their products before. I don't know if you can even do this with something that you create like this, but I can do it with music or audio shows or something else that I made, artwork or whatever. If you had to, and these are both selling, so who the hell cares? What would you say about Johnny Mnemonic versus The Lord of the Rings? And I think they have a little bit of a tie-in, but maybe completely disagree with well, that. Well, Lord of the Rings and Johnny Mnemonic, completely different games in pretty much every way, shape, and form. Oh, you uh, think I, so? Hmm. A lot of Lord of the Rings, certainly a lot of the complexity of Lord of the Rings comes from the software side of things. It's a very deep game, and it's a game that you have to play at a very high level to explore all of that stuff. Okay, yeah. And, yeah. and so <laughs> You school me right here. No, I mean, I think that I'll tell you the similarities between Lord of the Rings and a completely different product from my perspective. If we go back to Deadpool and Lord of the Rings, when I sat down to do those games, in both cases, I was trying to not reinvent myself. Uh-huh. I was trying really hard to come up with layouts that were different from layouts that that I had done in the past. 
that being said, when I did Deadpool, I, I was thinking that I wanted to capture some of the flow and speed of Johnny Mnemonic. When I did Lord of the Rings, at that particular moment in my career, I don't know, I had designed maybe seven or eight, I can't, I don't know what the number is, play fields, maybe more, I, I, by then, I don't remember. But you have certain go-tos and things, certain things you do, certain ways that you approach the interaction of toys on the play field, the transformation of devices and the flow in the game and stuff. And, and I just, I, I wanted to do something different. And it turns out that, you know, a lot of people gravitate to that game. A lot of people really like it. And it is a combination. They all are. The design teams that work on them, everyone working on the game brings something to it. And the game designer is essentially like a film director in the sense that it ha- you know, he has to manage those ideas into a viable, cohesive product. Everybody can have ideas. The sound guy, the art guy, the coder, everybody. In my experience, the best implementations, the best games I've ever made, right? The Monster Bashes, the Deadpools, the Lords of the Rings. Those are games where the teams were heavily invested in what they were doing they were into it they're having fun while they did it that's what comes of it right i don't know if that touches the comparison you wanted but i think i just had one thing in my mind and then that's that's why i thought i want to compare those two titles as far as which one you would go to what would be a good comparison between two similar games do you think i know they not try to do the same thing twice because who does similar similar games yeah that's a tough one because i've done the crossing crossing ramps thing a lot meaning that you know like making the left ramp mm-hmm. feeds the right flipper making the you know making the right ramp feeds the left flipper so that you can continue those shots so i've done that a lot i think that i mean i've used magnets but i haven't used them to the extent that other designers have used them i have a magnet in the ring in lord of the rings i've magnet in batman mm-hmm. 66 and so I think that I sort of uh, try not to repeat myself, but some people accuse me of doing the seven-shot array, but that to some extent, you know, you're working inside a 20 and a quarter inch width, and a ball occupies an inch and a sixteenth of that 20 and a quarter. If you don't want to compromise shots, then I think that you do focus on a fan of shots that occupy the top of the play field. So, Would you ever I do mean, a go into the races? I don't think so. I think this is well over our, what our listening audience is, is used to. In fact, most of it's over what I know. I only know because of having to run into things like this before. That's when I learn about stuff. I don't do a lot of research. I don't like <laughs> that. I like the people to come along with me, cheer me on, <laughs> ask the stupid questions I would ask. But I have still have parts of your Transformers uh, machine here. You you donated some stuff yep. to our charity for... Uh, yeah, I remember. What's it called? Co-op for Kids. Yep. And I ended up bidding and winning on a couple of Transformer pieces of side art, uh, one of the prototype ramps, and, uh, and something else I don't recall that's down below there. But I guess 3D printing has probably helped out your uh, yeah. creation a lot. We use it all the time. We do a lot with it. It is funny to me that a lot of people refer to it as rapid prototyping, but I, but I'm actually much a much faster prototyper with my hands than any 3D printing process. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I think it's interesting to me that the, you know the, 
a lot of people say, oh, rapid prototyping, you must be doing a lot of that. Well, we are doing a lot of it, but there's nothing rapid. <laughs> <laughs> no, not waiting around, right? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing rapid about spending, you know, five hours on your computer creating the model that is then going to print you know, in eight hours. Gotcha. Right? <laughs> like, I can take some styrene and some solvents and I can make you a plastic ramp in an hour. <laughs> there goes that idea that I thought was a pretty good yeah. question. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's... Uh -huh. it, Seriously, it has a place, and yeah. it has, it allows you at a certain level of detail that would be more prohibitive in traditional methods. And like I said, we do it all the time. You know, we 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 prototype all kinds of things in it. But the notion of it as theoretically a fast way is. Mm. I don't know if you recall, but I spent like five years of my career at a toy design studio, the biggest toy design studio in the world, or the most successful toy design studio in the world at the time, Marvin Glass and Associates. And you know what? I tell you what, when I walked in the door, those guys, this would have been in the early 80s, those guys taught me what rapid prototyping uh -huh. is about. Rapid prototyping is walk up to the milling machine and design the damn thing on the milling machine. Yeah. That's rapid prototyping. So I think all those methods that I learned there about how to quickly iterate on something, I love that stuff. As much as I love my CAD tools and my 3D printers and all that stuff, it's a tool in my repertoire that I go to whenever I'm not finding a solution in my CAD system. Because even 3D CAD just doesn't inform you the way that touching a piece of material, cutting it, gluing it together and being able to try some things quickly, it creatively informs you in a completely different way. Much faster you see things that you wouldn't have seen. And I think some of it is how our CAD tools, they're still too cumbersome, meaning that mm -hmm. you know it, it takes a while to generate that stuff. And yeah. so you spend all this time generating something. That effort in some ways prevents you from seeing things very quickly. I now can completely understand that. I mean, rolling a ball back and forth on a piece of wood is is going to give you a lot more yep. feedback than than trying yeah, to. I think your brain, out. you know, I mean, you, the human brain is just such a powerful thing, right? You, you're getting feedback in ways you don't even perceive. You're getting feedback. It's all the different senses are playing a role. It's not just your eyes. It's, it's tactile. It's you know, it's it's a, a perception of speed, of velocity, a thing, a weight, a texture. All that stuff is informing your decisions. Yeah, gotcha. Anything that I'm really not sure how it's going to behave, mm -hmm. I'm hands-on with it long before, you know, and then when I go to CAD after being hands-on with it, it's about refining it. It's about getting it into a manufacturable scenario, meaning sure. that, you know, it's about applying a process to it. It's sheet metal, it's vacuum form, it's injection molded, whatever it is. It's about applying that process. It's about creating a precision and controlled environment for it. It's about interact, you know, it's about fitting it to the rest of the environment that it lives in and relating it. And all of those kinds of things are what happen in the CAD system. It begins as a sketch, old fashioned way, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. with a notebook and a pen, and then it migrates into cutting up some plastic or some foam core or some hot glue, whatever it is, and trying some things. And now I have a general idea of what that thing is, how it works, and what I want. Now I'm going into CAD, and now I'm going to polish that sucker. Now I'm going to get in there, and every nut, bolt, screw, I'm going to check clearances, and I'm going to apply material thicknesses that are real, and I'm going to apply all of the constraints of the real world 
which will then allow people to mass produce this thing reliably. I mean, that's in a nutshell in like, you know. <laughs> yeah. The, I don't even uh, know how you figure out the angle of the table that you want it to be on. Like, how do you yeah. figure in those physics? Uh, some of that's experience, you know. Some of that it's like, you, you know, you know what works. Uh, you, you've seen certain things and you've experienced certain things and you work with that. You know, there's a lot of tricks. I watched the novices, you know, I watched all the guys in the 55 garage shops all over the world that are trying to make pinball machines. And, and I watched the, mm. the things they do. And I, the problem with existing in those isolated environments is that you don't have the benefit. The good news is you exist in the isolated environment and you might actually come up with something that doesn't, that would have been dismissed at a place full of guys that have done this for 40 years. Right. But the bad news is that you're going to go down a lot of blind alleys because when you're surrounded by the culture of pinball, if you will, mm -hmm. you're going to learn quickly. And when we hire a new designer, his learning curve is uh, explosive because he's surrounded by guys that have done this a billion times. And yeah. so it's like, no, nah, don't do that. Do this. And you're this not is why listening you to your own echo. You're, uh, yeah. I think that's why I thought about the 3D printing, because I was coming at it more like a recreation instead of a creation. I think that's why I thought about the prototyping using a 3D printer would be great boom, where actually it, it's more of a, yeah, and you know, I think, nice. You know, I think, and the next step in that stuff, to summarize, I took a course in MIT on the application of that technology to actual mass production in small quantities. And the course was entirely focused on not necessarily the prototyping thing because we already do that everybody knows how to do that everybody's doing that that is the primary way in which these technologies are being used they're referred to as additive technologies you know oh, as opposed right. as opposed to reductive technologies right like you know you, you, you reductive technology you take a chunk of, of aluminum you bolt it to a device on a milling machine and you take away material until you get to the part you have and the additive technology is essentially either as serial lithography or in the filament-based methods, they essentially grow the part. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they're at it. But regardless, the next step in that stuff is working the cycle times or creating farms of machines that will allow you to actually create because the materials are making advances, and so you can now get metals, essentially grow metals and grow, you know, you, all of the additive processes in materials that you can actually put into something, and they have the same performance characteristics as materials that you would injection mold or materials that you would cast or materials that you would machine. And so what that leads to is everyone starts thinking, well, you know, the military is worried about, like, I got a bunch of guys in the field somewhere and they've got a broken down part in their truck and you know they had a metal printer in the back of that thing they could print their own parts mm. it, you know, that, that's, a, that's a science fiction scenario at this point but <laughs> yeah. that's how people are thinking you I know see. that's how people are thinking right so so in my manufacturing environment my limited editions are 500 piece runs so it's not out of the question to imagine that i can actually print 500 of something assuming that i could select a material and a performance that satisfies all the performance criteria such that I can make something without spending a lot of money on tooling because it basically there is no tooling mm -hmm. uh, it's for just that. materials yeah so I mean I think the 3d printing thing you you brought up really the thing that we're most looking at is hey for us some of our short-run stuff it might actually be a valid 
production method. It's better than getting your toys from a Happy Meal and putting them into a pinball machine. That's correct. And we, we, haven't, we actually haven't done that for a while. We, yeah. like, a lot of our stuff now is very much the community has sort of demanded that the thing they're getting is unique and specific in a way. And so we create a lot of stuff for the games. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't compromise the, the application in any way, I'm, I'm not philosophically against it. But wasn't that the Simpson table? Didn't they take the Simpsons toys? and They did, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I've done it. I mean, I have, uh, I think, the Dark Knight version of Batman that I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that had molded, I think they were Hasbro toys. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Actually, on Batman 66, those Batmobiles are Hot Wheels Batmobiles. Yep. Okay. So yeah, so, Wheels, so, yep. well, I, uh, that's what I meant. That's why I said yep. that. That's why but I said that. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, at the same time, the, 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 like the Batphone was custom, you know, that was custom molded okay. for the game. But I mean, why would I go through the trouble of making a Hot Wheels Batmobile when, in fact, the Hot Wheels Batmobile works so well. That's true. That reminds me. So 1966 Batman, there's a Munster's table out there. We had the Adams Family, but that was from the movie. Do you think there might be a... This is sort of like a wish of Kyle's, I think, is what it is. Is We want to see an original Adams Family. Oh, like the back in the day from the 60s? Yes, the 60s Adams Family. It's fascinating. What do you think about that? Well, you never can tell. You never can tell. Boys, I, I think the boys down the street are working on that. Oh, really? Well, if the yep. if the monsters came out, I guess that's the the go to. Yeah, probably. Um, I'm I'm gonna say that's a Chicago gaming type project, right? <laughs> the guys that remade Monster Bash and and uh, Medieval Madness, right? Gotcha. It's like take an art package from the original series and try to dress up Adam's family with it. You know, don't have to do much of it. You know, it's like, it's basically an art project. Just flip the left side of the table over to the right. Mm-hmm. No, you don't even have to do that. Don't, don't mess with the game. Don't mess with the game. Just, <laughs> just doll it up. Just doll it up to look like, uh, something else. I'm, yeah. Well, I'm going to yeah. have to tell Kyle that, uh, I'm going to have to kick him in the ass for having me ask that. <laughs> That's the only question I had, actually. Everything I else is just coming I off the top of my head. He must, he, yeah, I think he's hanging out with those guys. <laughs> I think, I'm pretty sure that's what's in the back room over there. <laughs> <laughs> and then if someone comes out with a Bewitched table, then another company has to come out with an I Dream of Genie table. Yeah. That's how that works. I, yeah, I think those are, those are the, you know, I think one of those, yeah, I'm sure those are going on somewhere. <laughs> I want to really see my mother the car. That's the table I want to see. Well, you're re- now you're reaching. <laughs> How about Manimal? I want to see a Manimal table. Manimal. <laughs> Do you ever see Exo Man? Why talk about games at all? Do you ever see Exo Man? Wow. No. <laughs> I'm 53. I just turned 53. So you're okay. younger than me, though, right? You're, you're. No, I'm older than you. Oh, I'm you older. are. Oh. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm, then you're old. I'm I'm 63. So really. You know, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. You could have babysat me. <laughs> that's right. We both look good, though. And that's something we're to say. Pulling it off. You know, yeah. We're pulling it off. Yeah. We make it happen. We're the new 33s. But Exoman was this really, I think, awesome thing. And it really shows you how a person would have to look if they were really going to dress like Iron Man. It was a fellow that, 
course, he had it become completely crippled so that he would make this iron lung suit that he could walk around in and not be able to sure. turn his head. But it, it's it like really. A, um, the loader and aliens kind of thing, right? It's an exosuit. Exactly. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. But instead, it's like just a pair of spandex and then he's got some plastic shirt that's and a plastic yeah. helmet. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. But it shows you how a person, you know, a person's head has to fit inside of an Iron Man mask. So you don't realize that, okay, you have your regular body and your shoulders only go out so far. Your chest can only be so wide. So your head's pretty large. And if you want to put a helmet on comfortably, it doesn't look proportionate to a human. It looks like you have a giant chibi head. (laughs) Exomen really (laughs) illustrates this properly. Don't anyone tell Tony Stark, but I don't think I don't think he fits inside that suit either. No, no, uh-uh. and and that was the whole. Well, let's really go off topic and then reel it back really quickly. But I always have to complain about superhero movies. And the first movie, he goes against giant Iron Man suit at the end. The villains yeah, in the giant Iron Man Iron suit. The Ironmonger. That's it. Let's we'll say yeah. that and. Yeah. Uh, but his arms would have had to have been broken in half for his arms to fit way out where the Iron Man arms would be. It's sort of like you're sitting on a chair and your feet never touch the bottom. <laughs> you, know, you think you're sitting down properly. Well, no, in that, in that particular case, he was driving that thing, right? Exactly. You have to, you, you, yeah. you probably just have to be in a real no, tiny ball. Like, you're, you're like in his chest with your head, your head exactly. you know, Helmet, right? Everything else else is essentially um, robotically controlled, right? It would have to be that way, but it was just in that area where you would either have to look like a ridiculous little bowling ball or have your arms and legs broken all over the place. So so, uh, don't do that, kids. Don't do that at home. I'll tell you what, though. You know, you talk about superhero costumes. Yes. And so um, you look at the Batman mask and you say, come on, how do they not know it's Bruce Wayne, you know, half mm. his face is exposed. Well, like, what's the deal, right? Some years ago for Halloween, I'm trying to put together a costume at the 11th hour, and I decide that, you know, it's pretty easy. I can do a Zorro gig, right? Yeah, sure. Got a black bandana, got a black bandana, black shirt, you know, a sword, some boots, cape. Mm-hmm. You know, cape was probably the toughest thing, right? <laughs> and a hat, right? And the and hat's I, the I hardest, I think. So I, yeah, I go to the, I go to the party. And I have a black bandana with a couple of slit holes for eyes, and it's tied around the back of my head, just pretty much like Zorro should have done it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I walk up to a buddy of mine at the party, and we're standing around having drinks talking, and I realize about 10 minutes in the conversation, he doesn't know it's me. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm thinking to myself, wait, I... Okay, I take it all back. That whole <laughs> Batman thing, mask thing, that really works. <laughs> to this day, I give him shit about it. I'm thinking, I can't believe it. You, you couldn't tell it was me. I'm thinking, but you got a Zorro outfit on. <laughs> I know, dude, but half my face is exposed. <laughs> Maybe next time you'll just try a swirly uh, curly cue on the top of your head and slick the rest of your hair back. See if that works. Oh, God. Take yeah, off and put on glasses. Uh, yeah. Take off your glasses and yes. be super. That, that's a tough one. <laughs> that one you could do. You got the curly hair. You got the glasses. Just slick back the rest of your hair. See if anyone recognizes you. Right. Who that's, knows? That, that's so ridiculous, right? That's like, I, you know, leave my glasses at my desk and get up and walk around the studio. No, it's <laughs> so <what? laughs> 
I heard it's all in attitude. I heard, I heard that it's all in how you pull it off. That's sure. why people can't tell it's you. Totally taking your show completely off the rails. <laughs> well, that all ties in, I think, in absolutely no way whatsoever. A while ago, the We Talk Games crew and I went and we did a one of these presentations that you do at these conventions. And I always can never remember what they're called. Consuls, councils, consulars. I can't remember. Concierges. <laughs> and uh, we did the history of Batman and Superman. Uh, okay. which, but Superman only lasted to the Atari 2600, and then there weren't any good Superman games after that, even though people poop on <laughs> the 2600 version as well. But it's, it's like the only one that made sense because Superman's indestructible, so hitting him right. with a bomb doesn't make his life go away. No. So like the, the first one was more about time or trying to save somebody or trying to save something, and that's, that's how you scored. You didn't score by dying. Or, well, there's, you know, there, there's always kryptonite. There's kryptonite, but either he's going to be completely killed by it. <laughs> nobody shot him with a kryptonite bullet in all this time. I'm sure they yeah. have. Batman had to get his tweezers out, make that happen. But that's what we talked about. We talked about Batman and Superman. And uh, somehow that was going to bring us back to pinball, but I don't know how. Superman is not a very compelling character to me. It never has been. It's very hard to write for. Very, very hard yeah. to write for, and, and that's why it's so hard to make a game. There was only ever one other system that made a game that did Superman well, and that is because you had to save Metropolis, once again, a timer-based game where you were sort of in a race against time because you were indestructible. You know, you didn't have a lifeline. You just had to finish things in time to be able to save Metropolis. So I gained these little bits of knowledge from stupid things like that. So... Uh, once again, has nothing to do with anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, well, you know. So I tell you. It's just a conversation, right? That's all it can be. Can you take me through a day now of what, what happens? Like, I know what happens in Hollywood to people that make animations. That's right. that's my crew that, you know, I used to hang out with, and they went on to do successful things, and <laughs> I went on to uh, be, a you know, an IT administrator. Uh and do the things I wanted. So, yeah. My days, they're, um, my official title is Chief Creative Officer, right? So all of product development for Stern Pinball reports up to me. That means all the design teams and all of their antics, all the things they're doing. So I spend some amount of my day just kind of running around the studio and either helping them deal with some of their problems. Sometimes their problems relate to interactions with a licensor. Sometimes their problems relate with interactions with other areas of the company that have a different vision for how something should be done or how they should be doing something. Some of my days involved with manufacturing and sort of making sure that those guys have what they need or doing what they need to be doing and all that. So I deal with lots of different things on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis. Some strategy stuff with the, the rest of the executive teams. What licenses should we get in the future? What relationships? And we're spinning a lot of plates here. We mm -hmm. many different things going on. You know, we have an accessories program and a parts program and we have we sell into a variety of different markets and we sell globally and we have relationships in digital and we have relationships in 
commercial stuff. We uh, spend some amount of time envisioning a consumer business. And so just a lot of different things. We have lots of new product initiatives beyond just the development of pinball machines. The notion of all of these licenses as they're applied to games bring with them a lot of unique and very challenging hurdles and scenarios. Sure. Some, some licenses, Marvel with Deadpool happened to be very easy, but I can say that there are other properties that perhaps a film property that mm. where because, because of the complexity of actors and directors and whatever, even though it may be a Marvel property that maybe it wouldn't be so easygoing because you have this these other additional moving parts that also need approvals or that don't want to participate or et cetera. So there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of different, but the reality is that my job is about making sure that the company is creating compelling entertainment and that my guys have what it takes to do that. And that means managing up the executive team and some of the other stakeholders in in the different elements of the business marketing sales manufacturing quality all that stuff and sometimes it's managing down to the level of a team that's stuck on something or maybe they have some challenges in terms of getting their product to a a price point or they have a challenge with uh, some piece of technology so mm-hmm. it's it's a very diverse day. It's a very very diverse day. No, you know, no two of my days are the same. As much as I love to design games, I'm at a point where it's really hard to design a game and do my job as chief creative officer. Right? It's mm-hmm. like because it, there's some amount of travel and to deal with partners and relationships and business and and all that kind of stuff. And then there's some amount of in the studio were and it's just a lot of stuff but it, they're fun days i mean it's an amazing place uh there's lots of activity lots of energy lots of super motivated people trying to make great stuff and the challenges that come with that it's part of the game right yeah definitely i worked with um advertising agencies before so it's what it seems like is uh, you're the cco but you also go and you do presentations to prospective uh licensees i guess is that what what happens some of it, yeah some of it um i definitely uh i travel to see the license licensors uh and then because we're the licensee okay but, yeah i didn't know how that was you know, gonna work to be honest yeah with you. no 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 uh so we um i will go a lot of times i take key elements of the team of the design team like the game designer or somebody goes with me mm-hmm. and they pitch their vision for how to handle the property Sometimes it's about trying to get the license, and sometimes it's about getting approvals on things once you have the license. But, I mean, it's really about creating products that people want and want to play and people enjoy and people want to buy. What all is Stern doing right now? Well, we're doing a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to make it real open-ended. So we're the largest and most prolific pinball company on the face of the planet by a long stretch. We have probably something like 98% of the world market in pinball. So so what are we doing? Well, we, we make what we call three cornerstone games a year, each one of those cornerstones being a, a different, unique title. We try to hit lots of different areas of interest. So sometimes it's action movies, and sometimes it's music games, and sometimes it's younger-themed games, etc. 
we just did a really interesting thing with the Beatles, a very, very tough license to uh-huh. to, uh, to get because very expensive because it's such a, an amazing property. Uh-huh. We did a product with them. It's got nine Beatles songs. It's basically Beatles Come to America era. We're having great success with it. It addresses a segment of the market. It doesn't address our traditional cornerstone market. So each of our cornerstone games has three different price points. And that designing for three different price points is quite a challenge for the design teams. But it's a really good part of our business to have this segment, you know, this this segmentation in this sort of um, uh, stratified product line. So we do that. We do some number of what we call vault games, which are games that had popularity and maybe we'll refresh them and bring them back. And we try lots of different things this year. The games will be online, and uh, so there's a big tech, you know, there's a big technology initiative internally to make that happen. That's our business day to day. We produce a lot of pinball machines. We have 110,000 square feet right behind O'Hare Airport in the outskirts of Chicago, a city called Elk Grove Village. It's a hub of activity. It's a lot of fun. How about you license out Stern to other companies? You know, there's quite a bit of that going on for all intents and purposes. We are a global lifestyle brand because we're recognized as the pinball machine company. And mm-hmm. in some ways, we're sort of unique and very much out there alone. And so I think that that has brought a lot of people to us. You know, the brand Supreme that makes premium lifestyle items. And they came to us last year and asked us to do a game for them. And we did mm-hmm. uh, part of our private label business. Private label meaning that people come to us with a pinball machine that they're going to market and sell as I opposed see. to us marketing and selling it. Okay. And uh, so they pay us to do this and we do the game in turn for them and they do what they want with it. You know, they either use it as a marketing tool or they sell the game or we just did one for the band Primus and Oh wow. We did um, we did Paps Blue Ribbon for PBR <laughs> for I think in uh, 17, so... I need you to do something for cores because my stock is tanked. <laughs> Get those guys out of the horn. <laughs> we, we absolutely will do it. So it's a, it's a busy place. we got a lot of stuff going on. That's good. I didn't really know what was happening, you know, a pinball machine here and there. I didn't know if you were doing other things, like maybe back glass light-up lamps or something. I don't know. Let me put it this way. We have a lot of stuff going on now, but we have even more stuff. Uh, a lot of irons in the fire. A lot of things that over the course of the next five years are going to transform the company as we know it. And I think that... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty exciting time around here. Will you be making uh, the Boodles Gold Edition? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like the Boodles? Come on. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about beat time, of course. Just one more question. You say that you have a lot of video game machines. I think that we talked about uh, some of this stuff last time. I don't know if you even get to play too much, but what have you been playing lately that you could think of? Books and video games are things that I buy all the time and maybe not necessarily get to right away. Oh, me too. (laughs) You know, I don't know. There's something kind of fun about when I do decide that I'm going to have time to play Uh something looking at my shelf and saying, you know, it's on the shelf. So I might be playing something that maybe is not happening now. But well, that's was, good. Like, that being said, I am um, I'm kind of digging Red Dead Redemption. Okay. That was sort of a Christmas present. 
to myself because I thought, man, no one's going to buy me this, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy it. Um, I like to play campaign modes. I don't like to play with the kitties online. Mm, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes I buy a lot of stuff just to explore to see if there's a play mechanic that's interesting to me or a presentation or something that I can take into the world that we're in, you mm-hmm. know? And so, yeah, you know, I'm all over the map. I have, I look at all kinds of stuff. I play all kinds of stuff, but you know, I might not be playing what everybody else is playing. Oh, I, I never am. Yeah. Did you have the seventies Fonzie pinball machine, the little plastic joint? No, you no, didn't. I, no, I did not. Well, I did not. there's your next inspiration. That, Just that, make one that, giant bell in the middle of the, of the field. Two flippers. A <laughs> little bit of noise. Bang. Yeah, that could work, but it could also get really annoying really quick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the only real licensed Fonzie. It's not like 8-Ball or something. Right. Um, oh, you know it would be good? Uh, like a Robbie Kenny. Oh, you know what? I'm going to give you a... Every, I'm sure everybody does this. Oh, you know it would be oh, yeah. a good pinball machine? <laughs> Yeah, my brother with the, yeah, yeah. My one brother, you know, dude, a game about the Bible. Oh, wow. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Because there's, you know, thousands of stories. Thousands (laughs) of stories. Mm, mm -hmm. Get it up on that cross and uh, you get the magnet. The magnet. Yeah, I'm going to ask the old Steve Ritchie line when I ask you to wait in the truck on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what he said? Yeah, yeah. Legend has it that years ago, one of the sales guys at Williams, uh, Joe Dillon, rest in peace, came up and said, Steve, I got an idea for a game. And before he had said anything, he said, Joe, I'm going to have to ask you to wait in the truck on this one. That's great. That's great. (laughs) I actually think that the Zorro story should give you your, you know, at least one third of your next year's uh, ideas. No, it's. So when I was a little kid, you know, I'm, I'm Cuban, and I spent the first seven years of my life I, in the old country, mm-hmm. you know, and we came over in 62. And when I was a little kid in the old country, Zorro was like, he was a cool, hip, happening superhero. Hell yeah. <laughs> for for me, and, too, um, when I was a kid. And, and, and Puss in Boots. I don't want to <laughs> compare the two, but yeah. So, no, but I'm really disappointed that, that in the subsequent evolution of the character has never taken hold and never been something, you know, mm. because it was kind of a cool, you know, sort of a, a little Robin Hoodish in, mm-hmm. in the concept, right? Yeah, um, he was really, he but, was real badass Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah. It's like they've always like had the wrong guy playing him mm. or, you know, it's like some sort of compelling kind of weird combination of thing, you know, swashbuckling, you know, like fighting off guys with swords on swinging across chandeliers and tables and jumping yeah. on your horse and riding away, you know, yeah. like somebody should do like a serious hardcore, <laughs> you know, Oh yeah. Zorro, you know, you like, you know, people really bleed and, you know, I can see that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, put the double Z's all over their eyeballs. There you Seriously. go. Z, 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 Z. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about a Bride of Pinbot type of thing where it would be Diego de la Vega, and then, you know, you hit the certain switches. The ball goes down and makes you know, half Wiggly, of his mask. And, Wiggly, you know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah. You know oh, I got to wait in the repeat truck. After, <laughs> repeat after me. I'm going to have to ask you to wait in the truck on this one. <laughs> uh, I'm going to make it. There you go. How about that? It's going to have one bell in the middle, like the Fonzie pinball table. 
And yeah. I'm just going to paint Zorro over uh, <laughs> on the backboard. Yeah. That works for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, is there anything that you want to leave with the peoples? Thank you for calling me. I hope I haven't put you to sleep. No, I love it. And, uh, well, I hope I haven't put the people to sleep. Ah, who cares? <laughs> it, it, and it's for free, you know? Thanks for calling. Try not to wait, you know, 18 years before you, you do the next. <laughs> mm. See you later. Okay, See you later. take care. Bye. Bye. Blessing. Girlsies play with girlsies in 
boysies with boysies Bored with one another Like old broken Christmas toysies Kids are all hot Stupid parents so annoying And I laugh to myself At the man 